When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, it's Caroline Foran from Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. Please, please, please do follow the government's advice right now, which is currently to stay at home where possible. The sooner we all get on board with these measures, the sooner we will be all together again. While you're staying at home, here's a recommendation for another great podcast for you to listen to. I think we need a bit of comic relief more than ever, so why not try the Two Johnnies podcast, available on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Everything is Black and White podcast brought to you by Chronicle Live, bringing you the latest insight on everything to do with Newcastle United. You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or most podcast providers. Hello and welcome to Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm your host Andrew Musgrove and it's time for our Q&A session with football editor Mark Douglas. It's been a while since we've done one of these, a few weeks, but um, we thought it was apt to get back into it because of course... This week has been very, very interesting. Um, a poor performance against Leicester, that's putting it lightly. Peter Kenyon back on the scene. And of course, Manchester United coming up over the weekend. So Mark, we'll jump straight in. We've had a, a, quite a few questions sent in. Um, we'll start with one from David Harding on Twitter, who asks, why does Lee Charney seem to be untouchable? He references the fact that Steve McLaren was his pick. And obviously Steve Bruce is now in. Um, is Lee Charney untouchable? Um, untouchable in the in the uh, in the respect of Mike Ashley staying loyal to him. Well, I think we've seen we've seen from uh, from experience that Mike Ashley, once you get into Mike Ashley's kind of circle of trust, it's very difficult to almost get out of it. If he trusts you, um, he will kind of allow you free reign to kind of well, not free reign, but he will he will stick by you absolutely. You know, you've seen. When, um, when we've looked at his, his other businesses, that it's a very small number of people that he really trusts to go and do things. And, and sometimes it doesn't even feel as if that circle's necessarily related to kind of competence or even, um, you know, or even sort of effectiveness, but it's just people that he trusts because they're doing the job that he wants them to do. So maybe it's that the metric that he measures Lee Charnley against is different from the one that the fans measure him against. Because... You know, I'm sure Lee Charnley, if he had free reign to run the football club in a different way, might do that. But he's got to do it in the way that Mike Ashley wants him to do it. So, for example, you know, the idea of um, how they appoint a manager, the kind of things that he's asking them to do within the club to keep costs very, very tight, effectively, you know, to, to make sure that um, he does things in a way where they're not bringing in people who are going to, um, rock the boat, things like that. I suppose that's maybe the metric that he's measuring him against. I don't think he's entirely untouchable. I'm sure, you know, I know I, I, I've been told through third parties and you're never sure how, how much to uh, how much to read into this, but I've been told that he, there has been times when he has been unhappy with some of the things that have gone to Newcastle, but he will look at it and say, yeah, I mean, if you look at his Daily Mail interview in the summer, he said that the things he was most proud of at Newcastle were kind of the, the making the club profitable, making it... 
um, almost self-sufficient in the way that, you know, with the TV money now, he doesn't need to put any money in. That's how he feels anyway. Um, and that's what and that's what Lee Charney's necessarily there to do. You know, he's also the least paid MD in the Premier League. So they're not, you know, they're not paying him an awful lot uh, in Premier League terms. But he's kind of doing what Mike Ashley's asking him to do. You know, he's also a lightning rod for criticism as well, isn't he? Because he's, you know, he, he might, rem- as long as Lee Charney's there making those decisions, Mike Ashley feels like he doesn't have to get involved. Um, but I don't think he's entirely untouchable. You know, if they got relegated again, would Mike Ashley, would Mike Ashley kind of look at it and say, that's the second relegation on your watch. I've given you, I've given you this job. What do you do? Would Lee Charney himself maybe look at it and say, you know, look, I've taken this club as far as as far as possible. I know that the last time they went down, if he hadn't have managed to to persuade Rafa to stay, Lee Charney probably would have walked away. I think that was that was what he that was what he said. If he wasn't going to get the backing to bring Rafa in, I think he was, I think he was very close to walking away at that point. But obviously, it did it did move differently. Um, but at the moment, Lee Charney's kind of you know it, he would say, look, I've made a lot of made a lot of decisions now, um, and his from meeting him a few times. The way that he sees things is to kind of block out the noise of, you know, that he sees Newcastle as a club where that's a very high, you know, high highs and low lows, you know, and it's he said thinks it's exaggerated when we get very excited about things and it's exaggerated when we get low about things. So he'd look at it now and say, yes, it feels really bad, but let's see how this plays out in 12, 16 weeks. And I suppose to be fair to him, we weren't, you know, we weren't kind of hammering him about the fact that they didn't. They didn't pull the trigger on Rafa when things were looking a little bit dicey this time last year. Um, but clearly, what's happening with Steve Bruce at the moment it will be worrying them at, at St James's Park massively because if they go down, um, it, it's you know it's really bad. I mean they've they've spent the last three years rebuilding from the last relegation. Um, it would be disastrous if they went down again this season. But it's it's kind of looking like a distinct possibility at the moment. You mentioned there that the summer uh, they went down, you know, and he kind of did get a free win. He was making a lot of decisions, and him and Rafa had a really good relationship. And that was arguably the best summer Rafa had because he was getting the players he wanted. He wasn't really having a battle, and then that maybe set the bar for what Rafa believed the club could be, how, how the working relationship could work. And then that never happened again. It, yeah. Things changed. I think, to be fair, in that summer, what happened was that Newcastle, I think Newcastle are more, comf- are more comfortable paying the money for players at championship level. Very good players who will be very good at the champion at championship level. Um, they're they're more comfortable doing those deals than they maybe are sometimes doing the deals for the likes of Rondon. Um, so that summer, you know, that summer basically they did. Mike Ashley said, "Do do what you've got to do to get us back into the Premier League." And keep Rafa sweet, and the and then and the the message we'd heard was whatever Rafa wants, Rafa gets. That was that summer's message. Now I think probably what happened was there were a few things. Um, firstly, other people came onto the scene and sort of pointed out to Mike Ashley, "Hold on, you know you've spent a lot of money here. They're not running away with the championship. There's no resale value on all of these thirty-year-olds and and older players that, that you've signed. Um, it's time to rein it in a little bit." And of course, Rafa wanted in the January. He wanted to sign other players, and that's when the first um, the first problems came. But I, I did feel that summer, yeah, that, that, that there was definitely a, a change in the mood music. I think Lee Charney was going to do more um, media. He wanted to get his face out in, in front of things a little bit more. He wanted, you know, the, 
the press team within there were like, look, this is your opportunity. People don't know you. Get out there, talk, talk on while you're on the front foot, talk about what you're doing. And I think he was going to do that. I think there was there was a movement towards doing that. But obviously what happened in January ruined the mood and things never recovered after that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I feel that the last few summers, it's it's been a case for Lee Charnley of sort of, you know, I think he's not the only MD who's ever found Rafa difficult to work with, but he's he's in between two stools, isn't he? A little bit Lee Charney in that in that respect. But yeah, I think some of the criticism of his of him is justified, and he has to accept that this that the decision to bring Steve Bruce in was his decision, and you know McLaren was his decision as well, although Rafa was his decision as well. I suppose I know Rafa put himself in front and uh, and wanted to do it, but they did they did go for Rafa. But Steve Bruce is his big decision. It's his big call. He was massively involved in the transfers as well in the summer. So, you know, this is judgment day for him. You know, he would say, don't judge me after seven games or whatever. Don't judge me after that many games. Let's see what happens at the end of the season. But they get relegated again. He's going to have to take the criticism that comes his way because, you know, it would be a disaster. So on to Steve Bruce then. Um, Obviously, he didn't hold back after the Leicester defeat. You know, a talk of surrendering. Uh, Not the first time we've heard language like that. We've heard him seeing the players didn't put on their boots. I think that was against Norwich. Um, we've, we've already asked a couple of questions about whether that rhetoric is a bit worrying so early on in the season. Um, and Jeremy Elliott asks, will him accusing the players of hiding uh, lose the dressing room? Will, will his words end up causing fractions within the squad? Well, if, you, if you're to believe some of the noises coming out of that dressing room... Then they they at the moment the players are saying, you know, we can understand it. We deserved it. You know, I think they're feeling. We've I mean, seen the video today on Chronicle Live of Jamal Lascelles. You know, he's he's taking it on the chin. I think he knows that they they didn't turn up. He knows that they were they weren't good enough. Um, but of course, that those noises are coming from maybe some of the more senior players. That you know, I I feel that there's. Um, the noises for the people who were kind of saying they really wanted Steve Bruce in were maybe more of the kind of the British core of the team who were, who were you know, know Steve Bruce were really kind of keen to work with him, I think, because they know that he's a good man manager and he has got a, a good reputation amongst players, I think. I know the fans will, some fans will look at, will say, what are you talking about? He's got 28% win record or whatever. But players, you know, I think most players who've worked under him generally like working under him. But... Rafa used to say, you, players will give you a set number of weeks. It's not many. It's five or six weeks. It doesn't matter who you are. They will give you five or six weeks. And then if they feel that what you're doing isn't working, then they'll quickly start to peel away and not show as much faith in your methods. Now, I don't think we're at that point. I, I think these players are still, you know, are still kind of on board with, with, with what Bruce is doing. But... You have to say that the language is worrying. It did feel, it does feel a little bit like, you know, I, I think Steve Bruce's problem in some ways is that he is quite honest. And he, you know, talking about surrender and things like that, it's, you know, it's throwing, it, to me, it looks a little bit like throwing the, the group as a whole under the bus. Now, he wasn't pulling players, individual players out. So, you know, he's not doing that. If you were pulling individual players out, I think that's where it starts to become a worry. He was throwing the group as a whole under the bus a little bit. And, um, you know, I think he was being honest there when he was asked about it. He was saying, you know, and he did say 
to be fair himself, that I sh- I've got to take some of the blame as well here. Or I've got to take blame as well. I think he said some of the blame. The problem comes, isn't it, when when the players start to question it and and you don't, you know, we get the briefings, we get the, some of the high profile players and we get the ver- version of the players are still really happy, the players are still really happy. But it's when they start to lose faith in what he's saying and they start to question it that you, you start to worry. Now, even, you know, McLaren never lost the dressing room players all still liked working for McLaren at the end. You don't necessarily lose the dressing room before you become a manager that isn't working. I mean, you look at like the Stoke situation and it doesn't feel like Jones has necessarily lost the dressing room there, but what he's doing isn't working. So it's not a question necessarily for me of losing the dressing room because I think this group aren't going to be mutinous. They're not, they're not going to, they're not going to suddenly start, you know, tossing it off, if you will. But it might be that, it just comes to a point where what he's doing isn't working and then you have to make a decision on, look, if he goes five or six more games without winning, if they lose heavily on Sunday, if they start to lose heavily again, they will have to make a decision then. Um, but I feel that, I think that they're looking at the mitigation at the moment and the mitigation is that he came in very late in pre-season. They feel he hasn't got his best players fit at the moment. They feel like the other Premier League managers all had a full summer and the end of last season to plan what they were going to do this season. Steve Bruce had about three weeks before the start of the season. Um, he wasn't happy with the pre-season programme, all of those things. So they feel like he deserves a bit more time. I think that's a gamble if it keeps going on for much longer because you get to a point, don't you, in November, December, where it's like, this is a desperate fight and what do we do now? What do we do now? With McLaren, he kept picking up results that prevented them from having to pull the trigger. The question is, will will Steve Bruce? And we'll find out on Sunday, because it wouldn't surprise me. It's a very Newcastle united kind of thing for them to get something out of Manchester United, you know. And then it would be like, right, yeah, the Leicester fallout has been an overreaction. We go back to the kind of, you know, look, give him a bit of time. But we are, you know, I d- he won't get too many more weeks like Leicester, let's put it that way. And the players, I don't think he'll ever lose this dressing room. Um, he might lose some of the players in it, um, you know, whether he will lose like a kind of Almiron, because obviously Almiron's form's gone. We've already starting to see the voices in Atlanta sort of saying, you know, I saw your piece today about the guys in Atlanta sort of saying, oh, you know, well, he's not using him properly. You know, there might be a bit of that um, coming into the coming to the fore. You know, Jalinton, new player, you know, he looks a bit lost at the moment, but. I don't think he'll lose that core of that core of British players in the dressing room because they will just fight for him. But it don't, you don't have to lose a dressing room to for it to be a case where you need to you're not the right man for the job anymore. But using that rhetoric is that a gamble in itself as well because he's gone very hard very early on and it's like okay if it doesn't work so they don't get responses this weekend they then lose against Chelsea after the national break you kind of going well. Or what's next? Because Rafa, to my memory, only ever kind of lost it once, and it was after that Fulham game, and he and he went in hard, and then he said it's it's gonna be a miracle if we survive yeah. this. So the only time he's ever done that, I'm just wondering with Bruce, he's he set his sword up pretty early, and he's gone in very hard. And is it like if it doesn't work, then can it can he can he go back to the can he, is there another approach you can take? Can he then become this kind of friendly kind of manager to try and see if that works? Or yeah. I mean, I, I think, like you said, I mean, one of the one of the concerns you'd have is that he he's got the job. I think one of the strengths that that he has is man management. Players like working for him, so 
you know, if Steve Bruce loses the dressing room, then what else has he got? You know, he's probably not the strongest manager tactically. I think he's not the tactical kind of dunce that people paint him as. You know, I think he does. I think he, you know, he's he's done three hundred games. I think he does. You know, I know tactically, I have questions about whether he's kept pace with what the Premier League is all about, and I suppose he's got to answer those questions with wins. Um, but yeah, I mean that 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 would be. A big worry that that you know he's gone in hard. Where you know can he get a response? He did get a response after Norwich. Your point about Rafa now, you may although the players really like you know the players were wanted Rafa to stay desperately. The players loved Rafa, but it would be you know it would be remiss not to not to say and not to mention the fact that there were voices in that dressing room who felt that he undersold them, and there were times when he would. You know, they knew that when he was saying it'd be a miracle for us to stay up, he's basically saying my players aren't good enough. And you've got the players in that dressing room who, you know, some of them, some of them were not were not happy with that, and obviously the board weren't happy with that as well. But then they turned around and played really well for him. And one of the issues right now is, is that group as good as they think they are? You know, they're really good at a lot of things, and I think they are a little bit better than maybe they get credit for. But they're not showing it at the moment, playing a different way from the way that Rafa had them played. So they've been given a bit more freedom in certain key roles and they haven't been able to perform at the moment, you know. So that would be that would be a sort of a sort of question for me, really, is you know, there, there are a few problems there, but one, can they will they feel like, well, we've been thrown under the bus here, yeah, but the evidence is there that they aren't yet good enough to play the way that, that Steve Bruce maybe wanted them to play at, the, at first. I mean, the general point, and this is the final, I mean, the general point is that this is a group entirely signed and recruited virtually with, a, with the exception of three players, uh, four players are in the first team. They were entirely recruited, scouted and signed to play the Rafa Benitez methodology. So they were... They were meant to play certain roles in that team, and he's not there anymore. So that's the biggest problem, I think, at the moment. Do you think the club can see that problem? Do you think they they can see that actually they're going to have to do a, a total overhaul and this whole thing about not giving Rafa the extension, not maybe giving him that pay rise and not giving him the budget he wanted? In the long term, it could actually cost them more, A, if they go down, but B, because, like you say, the players have being scouted to fit into a certain system and under Bruce it probably won't work well I had I had arguments with people at the club last season and over the summer about this very point and their and when they their response to me was well we tried with Rafa now whether you want to believe it or not and obviously that's very much a, a point for debate and people listening to this will make their own decisions whether you want to believe that or not they say we tried everything we could with Rafa under the what we could realistically promise him so we could have we could have lied and said we were going to do this um and then it would have just we could have got him to sign the extension but he didn't the trust was gone he wasn't going to re-sign unless he got things in writing that it, that he probably knew that the club weren't going to offer him so i suppose from that perspective you'd say really the problems started so much earlier that the only way that they could maybe get rafa to stay was was by basically treating him a little bit differently and maybe better if you're being honest if you're being honest earlier in earlier in the time that he was there but they did have the meeting in in the summer you know they met at flannels um to uh, to discuss the contract so there was a chance they, they could have kept him i think you know if, if they had have 
I know that it's now painted as the two sides were so far apart and Rafa decided he wasn't going to stay and the club were going to not do it. But I think they could have found a way to do it. And I agree with you. I think that it is going to end up costing them massively um, because everything was set up for Rafa. You know, the whole club had become Rafa's club because he'd been there three years and he'd got everything set up. And the, the overhaul that it's, that it's required can't be done in four or five weeks. And we said this. I mean, how many times have we sit here on this podcast and said... They're going to have to get a move on. They're going to have to get a move on or they're going to be in trouble. And sure enough, we sit here, October 2019, and they are in trouble because they didn't they didn't do what we said, basically what we thought they should have done, which is either make a decision, get rid of Rafa, or keep him at all costs. And they didn't do it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it will, it will end up costing them. He's not here anymore. So now they're faced with the prospect of like, what do we do? Do we do we? You know, they they basically brought in a manager who was their third choice, I think, at least their third choice, because they'd gone for other people. So they had Mikel Arteta on the list. They had Patrick Vieira on the list. They always were thinking about Steve Bruce, but he was a very different coach to the one for an Arteta or a Vieira. So it's just judgment calls that they've... I think that, you know, if it doesn't work out, they've just made some very bad judgment calls. If it does work out, they'll turn around and say, well, it has worked out, so... Our judgment's worked out in the end, but it doesn't look great at the moment. It doesn't. Um, and that's what many people have been asking. We've got quite a few uh, people who've tweeted in asking how long do you think Steve Bruce will get before um, they pull the trigger. I'm not going to mention everyone because pretty much most of the questions are about that, but thank you for sending them in. Um, yeah, how long will Steve Bruce get before he might uh, lose his job? Well, he'll still, he'll still be here. Whatever happens on Sunday, he'll still be here for the for after the international break. I would think he'll get, at the very least, even if they lose the next four or five games, four or five nil, three nil, and and really get a few hammerings, I think he'll get at least until November, um, even if they're really, really in trouble. Because I think you know he'll get until that maybe the next international break after that, um, under pressure. But I don't think he's bulletproof. I think I think that's not you know I think that's that's not necessarily true because, you know. They are realists up at up at St James's Park, and they'll kind of know, they'll kind of know that you know the, the the most important thing for the football club is to stay in the Premier League because the TV money has made them self sufficient, so they desperately need to stay. Do you there. think, therefore, they've learned from the Steve McLaren season because he was he was given too much time. He should have gone um, before the international he was, play. but he was going to go in at the end of November that season. He was close to the sack after they lost by five at Crystal Palace, 5-1. And then they beat Liverpool. And then he was again close to the sack again, I think. Um, a couple. I think he, he wasn't close to the sack necessarily, but he was get, it was very, very close. And they would pull out a win, you know. They got to the, what they basically decided after the Liverpool game. They got, they were getting better, they felt. And then they started losing games again. They gave him January, gave him players because they felt the players they were bringing in would have resale value. So if they would go down, then they could sell them on, which obviously was the case with Townsend um, and would have been the case with Shelby, I think, if he'd have been a bit, you know, if they'd decided to sell him. Um, but with McLaren, it became, they asked, after that Chelsea game, they took soundings from the squad about whether to sack him or not. And they were all like, no, give him another chance. We still think he's making the right decisions. And it was very much like he got three games, didn't he then? And then they did, they did sack him. So, to be fair, they always give managers 
a long time. They always they they pride themselves on giving managers time, but that was what. So the the McLaren thing was no, end of November. Maybe there's a bit of a guideline there for how long Steve Bruce would get if things really weren't working. Um, but it would be highly embarrassing for them to, to have to sack him. And it would, you know, I think they know that as well. They want to give him time. They're certainly not talking at the moment about being nervous and, and trigger, you know, being trigger happy. The message coming from them is that, that we've still got faith in him for all the mitigation that I mentioned earlier. But I, I would think if you look at what happened with McLaren, it was the Liverpool game where they won at home um, 2 0, wasn't it? That was when. That was basically a win or bust situation for, for McLaren at the time. He won he won time then. So maybe you're looking at a similar situation with, with McLaren, it would uh, with Bruce, so it would be the end of November maybe. My worry then is is it too late? Um hopefully not. There's still a lot of season to go. My other worry would be who would they bring in? Because um the obvious candidate Don't don't say the name, I the know you exactly would be somebody who rescues teams from the drop they He's know already talk sport uh, guest we, yeah that's not probably it's... probably it would be you know it would be it would be Allardyce would be the one would be the bookies favourite from the moment it started I think you would hope that they would have learned their lesson that anybody that, that somebody coming in against the tide of public opinion is not going to work um, if they get rid of Bruce that is and then Allardyce coming in would be even more unpopular because it's like you know he's obviously um, relegated them before was very unpopular first time around let's hope and I know there'll be some people listening to this podcast who just hope they keep losing games so it forces the issue when he goes but I hope that he, you know they, they start winning a few games because getting you know unless you you are wanting the chaos theory of I want things to go as badly as possible so it brings things to a head Ashley has to go the manager has to go and I understand there are some fans who want that but, you know, I, I think from a reporter's perspective, I don't want them to, you know, if, if they start to lose games really heavily and they look like they're going to get relegated, relegation would be disastrous. We've seen it, how long it's taking them to get back on their feet from the last relegation. You know, we see in the championship that the amount of teams, I'm Stoke City, we talked about their bottom of the league, Middlesbrough struggling desperately, um, Leeds, it's taken them about a decade to get back up, you know. Newcastle could go down and be down there for years. We hope you've enjoyed this episode so far. Just a quick reminder to please subscribe and review to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or whichever podcast provider you listen through. How are you doing there? It is David from the David McWilliams podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. We're all following the government's advice right now. We're staying in. It's a little bit cocooning, but it's all working. So while you're staying at home, here's a recommendation of another great podcast. It's the Blind Boy podcast. He's an old mate. He's a great skin. He has extraordinarily interesting views of the world. Check it out. But I guess then people would come back and play devil's advocate. You would say because similarities to the McLaren season are just there. I mean, they are, there's no getting away from it. They are there. And it always goes back to why doesn't Mike actually learn from previous mistakes? He might argue he does. He has, I think, referenced doing so. But this, this, there's just so many similarities. And if we're talking about two, three wins from now until 
the end of November. I mean, that surely is not good enough. And and fans would fans would argue it isn't good enough. And and why wait that long if we get into the first of December and Newcastle have only won another two or three games? They don't learn from the mistakes. It's top and bottom of it. They don't learn from the mistakes, and that's one of the big failings at the, at the football club is that they don't. You know, they make a virtue of not listening to the outside noise, as I said earlier. But sometimes the outside noise is there for a reason. Um, you know, it, it's just, you, you, you can sit there and say to them, as we have, when I've sat down with them, they have very, what they think are very sound reasons. And sometimes I'm sure the fans who've sat in the fans forum and have heard Lee Charney explaining why they do certain things the way that they do them. But the end result is, and they can sound very convincing at the time, but the end result is at the moment, Newcastle United have had X amount of relegation battles in the last few years and they've not troubled the scorers at the top end of the Premier League for far too long. The only reason that they felt like they did last season was because of Rafa. Um, so they're not, they're not learning from their mistakes. And I think the reason that they're not learning from the mistakes is because Mike Ashley top and bottom of it does not understand football he does not have the knowledge of football like he has of his retail business where he think he knows if you speak to people who know him they will say he's a whiz with figures he can you know he, he knows the cost of everything he knows how to you know the catering and all this he thinks he knows how to, how to do all that but football wise he just doesn't understand the business he doesn't want to trust the people that he should trust He's had his fingers burnt with some people in the past. He feels like every time he brings in somebody who's popular, um, they kind of burn him, they burn his fingers. You would say that Rafa was clever enough to realise that, you know, how unpopular he was and to kind of use that unpopularity to kind of help himself a little bit. Um, that's what the club would say. Rafa would just simply say, I was expressing how frustrated I was with the way that they did things. But they don't make, they don't learn. He's been here twelve years now. They've got worse year on year, um, pretty much. I mean, since the fifth place finish, they've never, <clears throat> they've never really looked, they've never really looked up for it. And that they was make, probably the the biggest mistake he's not learned from. Back, you know, they could have, oh, they could have just built then. They could have built from there. They could have built from there. And that was that was one that was one aspect of it, you know. But but again, he didn't want to invest. So, you know, you've seen, but you've seen other clubs, other clubs have had similar problems in the, in the past. So it's, they're not alone in that. Wolves is currently suffering from the Europa League headache as well. So, so you know, I, they should have invested a little bit more. But then beyond that, they had the problems of Graham Carr versus Alan Pardew, the Cold War, the, the, and that had profound effects on the football club. Pardew was given too long. Um Ashley made, you know, Ashley brought Joe Kinnear in. Let's not forget about that. That was the biggest that was the biggest mistake that they made. That was what started us on this road to where we are now. Um, Lee Charney doesn't have enough help. He doesn't have enough football know-how. I mean, I'm sure if you said to him that he needs some help, he would sort of not say he didn't, but I think he does. He's got Justin Barnes in there. I mean, that's a that is a for me a factor in all of the problems of late. It's made it even harder for managers to get what they want made it harder for Rafa, you know, the club being on the market effectively for how long means that he's not interested in building the club. I know he says he is, but he's not interested in the profound stuff, the, the kind of investing in the club for the long term, because really what he wants to do is sell the club for a profit at the moment and, and get out. And I know fans will sit there and say he doesn't want to sell the club, but he does, but only at the price that he wants to sell it. 
So as long as you've got an owner who's not really interested in making it better. And I know the Daily Mail interview was full of, he's a dreamer and all this nonsense. Yeah, well, he'll say that on one day, but on another day, he, he's not there. You know, he doesn't go to the games. He's not been to a game this season. So it's a total, you know, I feel it's just, it's a dysfunctional relationship between Ashley and the football club because you hear all these things and it's like, and people will tell you these things and then, the reality of it and the, what happens on a practical level is just totally different from what the messages that you that Ashley gives out. So, you know, I, I've said all along, they need new owners. Um, the problem is at the price that he's asking, there's not masses of amount of people out there who could maybe move the club forward. We saw the Kenyan offering last week. It's up to fans to, to make a decision on whether they think that's better than what we've got at the moment. I think that's the next question. What is the latest with that? Was that a case? Obviously, the brochure looked like it had been done a few months back. That that's what it was. That it, you know, the interest in effect is old summer interest as opposed to being fresh and, and and new. I think I think the interest is the interest is is ongoing and fresh. And I think you know keeping Peter Kenyon's name linked with the football club is probably good for the Kenyan business. It's good for. Ashley, in a way, as well, it makes him look. It makes it look as if he's uh, makes it look as if he's still willing to sell. So that's 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 good news for for Ashley as well. But I I I just don't think there's any profound change from where we were in the summer, which is that you know groups interested, a lot of groups interested, but none yet with the money to 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 basically buy the club, and none with a you know no one with the money yet to go and make the offer that will that will really change things um i know people talk about actually moving the goalpost and that is a problem but you know i don't i think probably he's doing that a little bit because he doesn't see the the people that uh that he thinks are coming in that serious do you think he sees the danger that relegation brings to the price tag in terms of what what he can charge to take the club off his hands because you go down it's going to be nowhere near worth £250 million. I think he's more comfortable owning a championship club. I think he should have bought a championship club. I think he should have bought a League One or a championship club and he would have been a hero. He would have been a hero if he'd have gone and bought, I don't know, Nottingham Forest or somebody like that who were in the championship and he put a bit of money in and could make them really competitive in the championship and then they were in the Premier League and they were kind of yo-yoing between the two clubs. He would have been a hero. He's not, <clears throat> he's not fit for purpose as Newcastle owner because... You know, of all the mistakes that he's made down down the line, but when they're in the championship, it feels like he's more comfortable with the prices and the, the values and things down there. Um, he's more comfortable with with working with championship champion a championship manager, somebody you know who can get them back up. And as long as they're, you know, I think he can loan the club enough in that position when they've also got the parachute payments. He can loan the club enough to, to get the quality of players to get them out of the championship. It's then when they get into the Premier League and they have there's 12, 13 owners willing to put more money in than him that he has the problems. Um, but there's other models. He doesn't have to do the model that he's doing. There's other models. And Burnley don't put any money into that football club. Um, but they invest in infrastructure. Um, and they've got a really good manager. You know, I, I said in the podcast, I think in the summer, Newcastle should have looked at somebody like a Sean Dyche. I mean, Eddie Howe would have been the dream candidate, wouldn't he? Because he would, could have built... But Eddie Howe, I don't think, would have come near the job. But there were other people who would have come near the job and, and would have done a different sort of job. I think, 
do I feel like relegation really worries him? Because he's not going to sell the club if they're in the championship because he wouldn't take 150 million for it, I don't think. Um, and I know some fans have this fantasy of him going down to League One and him being desperate to get the club off, 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 off his hands. But I think we're a long way off that because every time they go down to the championship, he just loans a bit of money, adds to the debt, and then either the debt's bigger or they repay the money when they're in the Premier League. So his model of getting them back into the Premier League. I mean, he said it in the Daily Mail interview, didn't he? He said, am I good at lending them a bit of money, getting them back into the Premier League? Yes. Am I a good Premier League owner? Well, the jury's out on that one. And that's the problem, isn't it? If they get relegated, he'll think, well, I know the model. Get them back up. They thought when Chris Hewton got them back up, anybody could have done it. And I suspect they felt with Rafa that anybody could have done that with the resources that he had as well, or any decent, competent manager. I don't know that for a fact. I know for definitely with with Hewton because Lambias briefed that. I don't know. If, I don't know with Rafa, but they didn't sometimes see how difficult that was um, to get back out of the championship. And you know that's the question, isn't it? Whether Newcastle United could do it for a third time. Let's hope it doesn't come to that. So on to our final few questions. Just give Alison as a bit of an insight into covering a takeover story because a lot of people, yeah. again, very sceptical and understandable. And yeah. you know they came out and said, well, "Why? Why are we?" putting this up the brochure looks you know so and so and, and you know it's just another waste of time just getting hopes up I mean just as, as football at uh, yeah. Chronicle Live just a little insight into so I think I think it's worth saying that you know there were a, I mean on the brochure thing I actually got sent the brochures I don't know about I think there wasn't too many of us actually got sent this brochure um, but there was obviously three or four people so I got sent the brochure um, and my take on it from what from all the calls that I made was it's an old brochure. Um, it's very interesting. You know, 46 pages of, you know, real insight into how the club would look afterwards. There was obviously the new name of GACP Capital Partners as well. So I knew it was a big story from that perspective. But I also knew, oh, I didn't get it firmed up that there was anything in the offing in terms of the take of actually going through anytime soon. Now, obviously, other party, other, other places reported that differently because they probably have better links with Kenyan than I do. I don't really have much of a an in there apart from, you know, third parties will, will tell us something. So but as a newspaper as a journalist, when I saw as soon as I saw that brochure, I was fascinated. And for all that the memes that people send you, boring, all that rubbish, and people saying we're not interested in this, we put the brochure up because we felt like, look, you deserve as readers, you deserve to see this because this is, you know, Nobody told us we couldn't put it put it out there. You deserve to see it because this is, you know, we're giving you the opportunity to decide whether you think it's a, a story or not. And do you know what? If 200 people had read it, I'd have said, do you know what? These people who tell us nobody's interested in the takeover, they're right. It, there genuinely is nobody interested in the takeover anymore. Tens of thousands of people read it. Tens of thousands of people wanted to. It was all that anybody was talking about for 48 to 72 hours. So, you know... It's very easy. It's like all these things, isn't it? You, you get told that people don't want to read a certain thing, but there is there was an interest there, and it was interesting. There was a lot of detail in it that was new. What I wasn't comfortable with, and what I haven't been comfortable with in the last however many months, is that I know that if we put a story out that says Newcastle United takeover, and then and then has anything in it, we know it'll be really well read, right? I also know that I have enough information to file three stories a week on to say Newcastle, this group are interested in Newcastle. This group of 
sort some information about Newcastle United. I have enough information to write that. Maybe not three times a week, but certainly more than we have. But we are editorially, we know that if we do that, it's going to annoy our readers because all they want to know in terms of is a takeover going to happen is, is this, is this close? Are they serious? When is it going to happen? They don't want to read. And I think we, we did have a position two years ago where people did want to read, oh, there's a, this interest from um, an American group or, or this. But I think we've got to the point now where it's like, that is not as much of a story as it was. And I think unless you can offer some fresh insight into that, it's really difficult to kind of justify doing those stories too often. I think there are, there's a time and a place for them to show that, you know, um, that, that these things are still happening. And when we can offer a bit of insight... I mean, I think you had a story in the, the last summer gone about the, a Mexican group. Now, I think at the time we were kind of debated about that, but you had it from a very good source, very good source, that that was bang on. It was really, you know, and they were actually saying more than what you wrote. And in a similar situation, we probably, you know, we are you become wary to the boasts of people because, you know, I think Chris Woffer, you won't mind me saying this, he's obviously left now, but I remember having discussions with him just before he left, he knew of a group who were telling him we are ready to move as soon as the season finishes and it wasn't been Zayed. This is going to happen within two or three weeks. It's good but, PR, isn't it, in many ways? If it, I don't know why they do it. I don't know why they do it. I have no idea what what reason they have for telling us this is going to happen within two or three weeks because they always put unrealistic timescales on it and nothing happens and you become immune to it. So, but I still, But I still think that it's a the club's still for sale so any insight we can offer into you know that process I think is you know as journalists our job is to tell you something that you don't know um, and and I judge it by my own level of interest in, in, in takeover stories so I see stories out there sometimes saying um, you know when I saw there's something I've come in the Daily Mail not that long ago about Bin Zayed going I think it was in their money section about them get, trying to get some loans to buy the club and I just thought and I mean, the guy, the DJ in Dubai writing the statement about Bin Zayed and, you know, the same readers who've told us this is boring, by the way, were off a height in the summer because we didn't cover that. What are you hiding? Why aren't you doing this? You're, you're running down the Bin Zayed credibility. And I was off the Monday. I'd been off for two weeks. And when I came back that morning, I had the X amount of messages telling me that well, you must be hiding something. The Chronicle are not doing their job because you're not covering this. It was rubbish. It was nonsense. They wouldn't even back up the statement. So we took a decision then to do nothing with it. So I, I kind of like, you know, I, I have a standard as well of, and we all do here, of do we think that this is adding anything to the to the narrative? Or, you know, we know takeover stories are going to have this response. But what people tell you on Twitter and what they leave, the comments they leave under the line, do not reflect the genuine interest in this story. But we know that when we've done stories in the past reflecting kind of like kind of sketchy detail saying you know American group are interested people aren't reading that anymore people are not interested in that anymore it gives you a very small spike but people just don't aren't interested but don't tell me that what happened on Thursday that brochure wasn't interesting it wasn't interesting that, that look there's a group here who are interested their name they're on this 46 pages of this is the model that Peter Kenyon would have that was interesting and it was really really i thought incredibly incredible details and i thought was really really interesting what it wasn't 
and this is where I think the mistake was made in some places, was necessarily, you know, we weren't saying in our coverage, Peter Kenyon is going to take over Newcastle United in the next 10 days. We weren't saying that. We never said that. And we haven't said that a, that a group is close to taking over since we ran the quotes from Bin Zayed saying that they were close. After that, we went and investigated that and were very sceptical eventually. You know, there were things that happened there that made it look as if it was going to happen. But So, yeah, I mean, the long and short of answer is it we, we, we source it, we double source it, then we make a decision on whether it's worth going big on. And, you know, the brochure really was what the story was last week. Not Peter Kenyon being interested in Newcastle United because he's been interested for 18 months, but he hasn't got any money. So, you know, well, he hasn't got the money to buy it. So it's not really until he gets the backers and when he gets the backers and makes the bid, like everybody says, it'll be a lot further along than he's in fresh talks with Mike Ashley. Um, but, you know, I, I stand by the fact that I think over the weekend that was a really, really big story on Friday, Thursday night, Friday morning. That brochure was was fascinating and everybody was talking about it. So, you know, People who tweet you, it's boring, we don't want to know. Okay, take that, but... A lot of people did. A lot of people read it. A lot of people read it. And, you know, you weren't. You don't expect... Um, you don't expect people to be massively positive about a story like that. Um, just like, you know, sometimes you get... You know, it's like the story with Jamal LaSalle today. You don't get loads of people coming onto you and saying, God, this is a brilliant story. This is really interesting. But, you know there is a difference necessarily sometimes between what people say they want to read and what they actually do read and what is important to put out there. So, you know, there are other outlets now doing really worthy stuff, really good feature writing and stuff, but they are in a, they're in their box. We're in a box of writing for Newcastle United fans. And we've got all the stats, all the analysis to show what people do read and as an editor, it's my job to make sure that when we we don't basically take the mickey with that, so we don't say, well, we know a story about takeover is going to do well, so we'll just go out and write and republish. I think some publishers do do it. Some publishers have done it today. All we know about the takeover, they republish it every week because they're just trying to get extra hits. I can promise you we won't do that here um, because we know it's playing on people's emotions, but I don't I don't um, apologise for covering the, the last takeover, the story of the weekend, the way we did it. On to a penultimate question then, from <laughs> a very interesting Twitter handle, Badger Doom. Know that one more? <laughs> um, he asks, is Steve Nixon under any scrutiny? Zero of the summer signings have made any kind of impact so far. He does say Williams may be an exception, but a lot of money out for very little back so far. I mean, you know, I think everybody's everybody be under scrutiny if they don't if they don't win, um, if they don't win more games. Uh, I'd like to get a firm answer on who is behind or who who did all the who was behind the Jalinton signing, because where the way that Ashley described it um, in the summer was that you know he was very enthusiastic. He was he was really happy about that one. Um, was it Lee Charnley kind of sourcing players? You know, was it through agents? Was it through, you know, was it is it through contacts that way? Or was it that Steve Nixon got a blank sheet of paper, go and sat, go and find us a striker who will do well for us? And he said, I want Jalinton. 
these are the things, aren't they? Sometimes chief scouts get get um, criticised. I mean, Graham Carr by the end was kind of criticised a lot for the players that he was signing. But how much power did he have to actually sign the players that he wanted to sign? That's the question, isn't it? So Nixon's just doing a job. I mean, you know, I felt sorry for Steve Nixon last season because, you know, although he was working with Rafa, Rafa was the one picking the players. It's the question now: Is is Steve Nixon the one picking the players, or is it is Lee Charnley, you know, finding players through agents and all those kind of things? So, uh, you know, he will be under scrutiny, yet, yeah, yet. Yeah, but how much direct influence does he have over who they sign would be the question that I would ask because it's we're a long way away from the days where chief scout identifies a player for the manager and the manager goes the manager goes and does his own signing. We're a long way away from that now. Final question then from Roy Brown Jr. He just asks, what is the point anymore? <laughs> well, uh, the one thing I would say, you know, I go back to the kind of the analysis and stuff and we, we, we have, you know, we have the kind of benefit in the chronicle of seeing the number of people who are clicking on stories and reading things. And um, I think Roy's feeling was very, very prevalent in the last two or three weeks because we've seen that the number of people reading stories, the number of people interacting with us on Newcastle United News has gone down. The crowds have gone down. There's a lot of people feeling very apathetic. What was interesting was when they lost 5-0 on Sunday, suddenly there's a surge of interest again. Massive amount of interest. Because I think that people are do still care. They do still care. And they were you know, disgusted, angry, frustrated about what happened on Sunday. So the key thing is, I think for Newcastle United is to tap into that that interest and that passion because if you can get them on side again then you're then you're going somewhere but I think the apathy is a big problem we got we went past anger into apathy we, we've got anger again on Sunday but it's gonna eventually get into I mean apathy is the big the big danger isn't it if they get relegated again do they what are the crowd's gonna be like I mean they, they went under 40,000 when they got relegated in 2010, could they could it could it go under forty thousand again? Could it go under forty thousand before the end of the season when they've got some pretty you know unglamorous fixtures coming up around the corner? They've got some good ones, you know. Manchester United, the crowd's going to be up again because it's Manchester United, and there'll be a lot of neutrals there. And but general sale, which is the first time I can remember that happening for. Well, I, I don't think I can. Admit, don't get me wrong; it may have may yeah. have happened before, but it's the first time in my recollection for a well, while. I went through the stats um, and this game has had, there's only two times since St. James's Park was expanded that this game has had less than 52,000 people at it. Uh, one was 2011 and the other one was kind of back to 2008, I think. And they were 49,000. So if it's less than that, it's a worry, isn't it? Because Manchester United will bring the full allocation. Um, students are back now as well, so a lot of them will be buying tickets because they just want to watch a Premier League match and it's Manchester United. Some of them will be Man United fans as well, kind of quietly going in the home end. I think, you know, that's impossible to avoid. Um, and there'll also be a lot of more Newcastle fans will be motivated to come to the game because it's a more glamorous fixture than Watford or Brighton. Um, but, but you know, it's still a worry, isn't it? Four, I think there's 4,000 tickets still left on general sale and we're now on Wednesday. So... You know, is that is that going to go down significantly in the next three four days? And of course, you can't calculate how many season tickets we're done. Turn up, no. 
just then to finish off, um, as this will be going out before the My United game, just your thoughts on, you know, Sunday, My United not in a good run of form themselves. Um, you know, Newcastle have got a chance, but things are just, I mean, yeah, how do you see it going? Well, I, you know, I think I think they have got a chance in this game. I think they'll, you know, you if you just put the man put the put the Leicester game to one side and just say Newcastle on paper aren't as strong as Manchester United, but on the day, I mean, they've got a horrendous away record recently. They've not, you know, they've, they've they just can't win away from home. Um, Newcastle will be a different team on Saturday from from Sunday. Sorry, from what they were last Sunday. They could get something out of it. I really, really believe that they're not as bad as they were on Leicester. Leicester, they weren't. You know, they're not as. The truth is, they're not as bad as Norwich and Leicester, but they're not as good as they were at Spurs. So they're somewhere in between. They're going to have to play well and hope that Manchester United have an off day if they're going to if they're going to win. Because last season, Solskjaer brought Man United to St James's Park and they and they beat Newcastle comfortably. Really, wasn't it in the end? Um, you know that that was a, a big sort of frustration really I think in the end it was not a great not a great kind of new day for Newcastle that if I remember rightly but they'll ha- hopefully if they start with St Maximum if Willems is around if they've got you know I actually think the key starting could be a good thing for Newcastle because he's you know he's a better fit I think sometimes for midfield and he might work well along side Longstaff so I- I'm not going into it I hope you know thinking they're going to get they're going to get another hiding um, ironically, I think Leicester are the kind of team that are Newcastle's worst nightmare at the moment. They press hard, you know, young, really hungry. It might be that Manchester United are the kind of team that Newcastle need to play on on Sunday. Um, and I wouldn't put it past them getting something out of their game because um, they're not that bad. It could be, you know, I, I think I'm not totally, I'm not totally worried about it. I think that they, could, you know, they could get something out of it. But if they get another hiding, then I'd be really worried because it's the kind of game that they need to get something out of now. Most certainly. Well, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. We will have a Manchester United preview going up on Thursday evening with John Cross from The Mirror and our very own Lee Ryder. Uh, for the moment, head over to chroniclelive.co.uk to keep up to date with all the latest Newcastle United news. And please remember to like and subscribe to this podcast. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is. It's a spin-off of our show, Reasons to be Cheerful. It's called Cheerful Book Club, and it's conversations with some of the best writers working in the world today. You'll really enjoy our chats with people like US broadcasting legend Rachel Maddow, literary giant Ian McEwan, and the big short and moneyball author Michael Lewis. Feed your brain with ideas from the Cheerful Book Club. You'll find us on the excellent Acast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from Ireland and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.